Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him. You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise and go to Paddan Aram to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Paddan Aram to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob and Esau's mother. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Paddan Aram to take a wife from there, and that as he blessed him, he directed him, You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women, and that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and gone to Paddan Aram. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took his wife, besides the wives he had, uh, Mahalath and the the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebiotha. I've been practicing. The grass withers and the flowers fade. You just say it fast and confidently. Nobody knows how to pronounce that word, you know? So, unless you're a Hebrew scholar. Um, all right, well, if you're not already, is my mic on? I don't think it was on last week, so. <clears throat> Check. Well, I'll pray. And then you have about 10 seconds, Tristan. All right, let's pray. <clears throat> Father in heaven, thank you for your holy word. Um, we thank you that uh, you have given us uh, another day to uh, live on this earth, to, uh, to breathe air, um, to interact with, with other people, our brothers and sisters in Christ, even, even this day, this morning. God, thank you for the truth that, w- that we've been singing about all morning, um, the, the wonderful reality of your uh, sovereignty. And how even in those times that, that seem like you're uh, not answering us or seasons that seem dry to us, that you are still at work and we just need to wait on you. And so God, I pray that you would teach us that through uh, your word this morning, um, through these, um, these people that you raised up to show us this great reality about your sovereign work uh, in the world. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name, amen. So the, the text this morning is a bit is a bit odd. Uh, it's kind of it kind of lands in between two major parts of this story. So it's a it's a when I opened it on Monday, I knew it was coming, but when I opened it on Monday, it was I was I was going out of town as well, and I was like, man, how am I going to preach this part of the story? And so just praying about that and just recognizing that God is in control of all of those things, um, I think He gave me something to say this morning concerning this part of the story. But we could refer to this part of, this, of the text this morning as a scene change in the drama. So you have people are moving about, 
You have uh, characters having their various thoughts and words and interactions with each other. And even the scenery is beginning to change. You can almost see in your mind's eye uh, what we are going to be looking at starting next week concerning Jacob's life. But what remains throughout all of these changes, throughout, throughout all of these ups and downs and unexpected twists and turns in the story, what remains steady throughout the entire story is God's sovereignty. He continues to lead and guide and direct the path of those involved in the story. He is a, he is a constant presence with them. He never leaves them. He never forsakes them. Uh, he has never stopped by its players. He, is, he never has to pause and, and kind of rethink or reconsider his plan going, oh, that wasn't what it was expected, so let me, let me do this now. God never has to do that. And I, and I think, at least for me, this is what makes his sovereignty seem so strange to us. Because it's not how we think it would work out. It seemed, to us, it seems messy and complicated to, to our eyes and even to our intellect, our own understanding, that just nothing could, none, none of this could work out. If this is something that we put into place, it would be a disaster. But not in God's room. So taking it scene by scene, I want us to look at this passage in three ways so that we see God's stra- or how God's strange sovereignty plays out in this family through three of its members and, and its members' actions. So the first thing that we see in verses 41 through 45 of chapter 27 uh, is Esau's fury. Second, we see Rebekah's deceit once again in verse 46. And then in chapter 28, we see Isaac's sending of his son Jacob. So three scenes, Esau's fury, Rebekah's deceit, and Isaac's sending. So first, Esau's fury. Similar to how God moved Isaac back to his homeland through the use of others and even, uh, you know, pagan folks, uh, he does the same thing through these three family members in Jacob's life. And that includes his evil brother, Esau. And that's what we're seeing in verses 41 through 45. So Esau is rightfully angry with his deceitful brother. He's not only cheated him once, but he's cheated him twice, leaving Esau with absolutely nothing. If you remember, he does not receive a true blessing from his father. It's been called an anti-blessing. It's just a reminder of the blessing that Jacob received. You are going to serve your younger brother. So unfortunately, because of the actions of everyone involved, what could have been a a family striving together after God turns into, humanly speaking, a disaster of epic proportions. Because what happens in verses 41 through 45 is not a man repenting and praising God for his promises coming to fruition in his brother. Rather, we see the opposite happening in Esau's heart. So a couple of ways we see this. First is in his posture toward his brother. Look at verse 41. The author states, Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing. Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing. So notice, 
It doesn't say he hated Jacob because he was deceived by Jacob. It says he hated Jacob because of the blessing. So at this point in the narrative, we have to believe that Esau is not ignorant of the promise that God gave to his parents at his and his brother's birth. And this angers him. This angers him. To to Esau, in Esau's mind, the blessing still belongs to him. He is the older brother. He does not care about what God said it was going to happen. This is not how it works in our culture. I am the oldest and I am entitled to the blessing. And with this sort of anger and fury in his heart, he can only see Jacob, not as his brother, who has received this wonderful promise from God, but only as one who stands in the way of his blessing. And the only way to solve that is to murder Jacob. Now, this isn't the first time we've seen hatred arise between brothers. All you need to do is go back to Genesis chapter 4 that we looked at in this series a couple of years ago to see the conflict that arises between Cain and his brother Abel. So here you have, in Genesis 4, you have righteous Abel offering a sacrifice that is good and pleasing to God, and God blesses him for it. God's favor is upon Abel, and in, and in return, Abel worship, worships God. Now Cain, on the other hand, his brother, seems to have offered a half-hearted offering that was rejected by God. It was not an offering like Abel was bringing, which tells us that Cain simply wasn't trying to please God at all. And so what's Cain's response when he's not favored by God, even when God gives him this wonderful opportunity to repent? Sin is crouching at your door. Watch out for it, Cain. What's the same emotion we see consuming Esau? Anger that leads to murder. And it's exactly what Cain does to his brother Abel that Esau desires to do to his brother Jacob. He doesn't get the opportunity. Yet even though Esau is unable to fulfill his murderous desires toward his brother, his heart is exactly the same as Cain's heart. Jesus makes this connection for us in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 24. And also going on a little further, uh, tells us how to go about handling our anger towards someone in the right way. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Now just as a little side note, applicatory lesson here, when we pass the peace to each other, if you have, if you have a, a something against your brother or sister in Christ, that is a wonderful opportunity to go and seek peace with them, 
to go and ask for forgiveness, to, to no longer harbor whatever anger or bitterness or whatever it might be in your heart towards that person. Because what Jesus is saying here is you will not be able to worship freely if that anger is lingering in your heart. Well, neither Cain nor Esau do this. And the reason being is because they both, they both choose to live outside the line of promise. And instead of, living within, instead of living within the line of promise, they are now living in the line of the curse. They are, they are the seed, we could say, of the serpent. So that's the first way we see Esau's heart is bent away from the promise. Uh, this is not a man who cares about God's sovereign work and plan uh, by any stretch of the imagination. The second way is in his posture towards his parents. Martin Luther wrote, he is, not angry, not, he, is, he is angry not only with his brother, but also with his parents and with God himself, whose blessing, as he knows, it is, and from whom alone it was also to be expected. And that's ultimately what it comes down to. Uh, like Cain, Esau is angry with God, ultimately. He is angry that God has not blessed him, but has blessed his brother instead, and the way in which he kind of lives this anger out is toward his brother, I'm going to murder him, and now his parents. Now at surface level, um, when we were reading this a little earlier, this, this merely looks like a, a spiteful, angry son kind of sticking it to his, to his parents here. And it is, it really is. He is spiteful, he is angry, he is not uh, walking in a loving uh, uh, manner towards his, his family in any way. I mean, but if you think about it, how many times did you or do you do the opposite of what your parents tell you to do simply because you want to make them angry or you want to hurt them? You don't want to do what they say simply because they are the ones that are telling you to do it. Well, this is exactly what Esau is doing. And he does this by, first he takes a wife from the Hittite women. If you notice that, this is what provokes his mother to say uh, what she does in verse 46. She says, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. She was a little dramatic. Um, if Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? I'd rather be dead, That's what she says if Jacob marries a Hittite, like his brother. And this is what his, uh, provokes his father to say in, in, in 28 verse 1, Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him, You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. So you, you, you're not going to take a, a wife from the Hittite women. You're not going to take a wife from the Canaanite women, which then provokes Esau to go to his uncle Ishmael. If you remember his uncle Ishmael, uh, Abraham's first son from Hagar. And so he goes to his uncle Ishmael specifically to take a Canaanite wife. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob, and so he's raging with anger, and sent him away to Padam Aram to take a wife from there. And that as he blessed him, he directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. And that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and gone to Padam Aram. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac his father... He goes and takes a wife from these very people. He's just going to stick it to him. 
So a couple of observations you need to take note of here, okay? So first, in chapter 27, verse 46, Rebecca says she loathes her life because of the Hittite women. So the author of Genesis is Moses. And so Moses is a very good writer. We've seen that throughout Genesis, that he does uh, he, he writes in certain ways to draw your attention um, to something in the text. And that is one of the things that he's doing here when he inserts this name on, on purpose concerning the Hittite women. It's an important detail. So if you have an ESV, uh, English Standard Version Bible, and I don't know if it's in any other Bible, I didn't check, but there is a helpful footnote for Hittite women. And if you go to, go to the bottom to the footnote, it will say that these Hittite women are the daughters of Heth. So who is Heth? So that's not very helpful if you just look down at it, you're like, that's great, the daughters of Heth. So if you go back uh, to the genealogy in Genesis chapter 10, you'll see that Heth descends from Canaan, who was cursed by Noah in Genesis chapter 9. So if you remember that, is his son's uh, one of his sons did, did a terrible thing, and so he was cursed by his father Noah. So, so Esau here is not only cursed himself, but then goes the extra mile to marry a woman who is also under a curse. So to marry one of these women, as Rebecca implies, is to set yourself against God's promises to Abraham. Abraham goes out of his way so that Isaac will not marry one of these women either. So then to pile it on even more, in chapter 28, verses 6 through 9, Esau also marries a Canaanite woman. So again, knowingly walking against the line of promise, knowingly walking away from the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac. Now, Before you start saying to yourself, well, he had no choice. He was already outside the promised line anyways. This was his his destiny. This is what he was going to do regardless of what happened. Uh, Look back at the end of the blessing Isaac gives to Jacob in chapter 27, verse 29. You should already be there. And the blessing says, right at the end, verse 29, Cursed be everyone who curses you. And blessed be everyone who blesses you. Cursed be everyone who curses you, and blessed be everyone who blesses you. Now that simple phrase, that simple insert into the blessing um, to Jacob tells us that Esau could have been blessed in some way by God. Yet Esau chooses to curse instead. And this is picked up on in the, in the New Testament as well in Hebrews chapter 12. I've read this before, verses 15 through 17. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. So what the author of Hebrews is saying there is that Esau never once sought an opportunity to repent of what he had done. Never once. 
So I think something can be learned here in how we respond when we've been sinned against. Because I know in the moment, it's, it's hard to wish blessings upon someone who has hurt you or sinned against you. So I'm not saying you need to go home and do that immediately. You might have a lot to work through with that. I understand that. It is not an easy thing to do. But this happened to me some years ago, probably 13 or 14 years ago, um, with, a, with a person that I was interacting with and the same ministry that I was involved in, uh, to the point that I actually can honestly say that I hated this person. I mean, hatred with the hatred that Esau had towards Jacob at times. And I remember telling a really good friend about this, and um, he's very wise and uh, kind of annoying with his counsel, uh, at least at this particular time. And he said, the way that you need to remedy this is you need to pray for this man every day. And of course, I was like, absolutely not. I will not pray for him. And he's like, you have to. You can't, you can't just hold hatred in your heart towards this particular person. And when I started to do that, and I did eventually start to do that, and I honestly did not want to, but I did, God began to soften my heart towards this man, but he also showed me at the same time that he was moving me and my family in a completely different direction than I was wanting to go. And I would say, 13 years later, standing here before you, we probably would never have planted a church if I held on to that hatred towards this person and kind of forced my will upon my life at that particular time. God's sovereignty is strange, isn't it? I mean, you can't get around it. I know we all wrestle with that. It's hard to get our minds around it. It is strange, but at the same time, it's beautiful because it's moving us in the direction of his son, Jesus. He's exposing us before him, just as he's doing this, uh, this to Jacob in these strange ways through his family members. God's sovereign plan prevailed through Esau's fury, through his anger, and the promise is protected ultimately through Rebekah's deceit in chapter 27, verse 46. So this is the last time that we hear from Rebecca in Genesis. This is the last time that she, as far as we know, she sees her favorite son, Jacob. I mean, she thought that he was only going to be gone for a few months. He'll find a wife. He'll come back. Everything will be happy again. And it ends up being 20 years that Jacob is in her brother's land. And so how does she end her last moments with her favorite son, Jacob? Well, just as she's always been, working out a way to deceive her husband again so that Jacob gets the most from this particular opportunity. Because Rebecca still believes that she is in control, that she has to manipulate the situation in order to get the right outcome instead of trusting that God would do exactly what he said he would do without intervention that his will would be done. So I think we can all relate to this in some way. So maybe you have parents who did this to you or still try to do this to you, or maybe you're that person. Maybe you're the manipulator in your, uh, in your family's life or in your friend group's life or, you, or at work. 
manipulating situations, uh, controlling to try and bring about the right outcomes, and let's just be honest, the right outcomes for you and for those closest to you. So this might be a manipulation of your spouse or your children or your friends or those you work with or those you go to school with, whoever it might be. And all of this type of behavior proves is that you're actually acting out of unbelief. You don't believe that God is who he says he is. So you, you are that person in your life that, this, that, this, this doesn't believe, that doesn't believe in the sovereignty of God, really. That he, that, he, that he truly reigns over every area of your life. So you probably have some parts of your life that are hidden away, or so you think, are hidden away from God. So God can have all of this, but this over here is mine. He can't have that. So Paul David Tripp, who was a pastor, counselor, a lot of you guys know who he is, he has a really helpful exercise in his systematic theology book to get your mind around how we can avoid unbelief in this way, but also how we can kind of start to get our minds around a little bit of of how God's sovereignty works out. So he says, imagine, I'm going to be pulling, so if you went back to see if I plagiarized from this, I would be guilty. So I'm just (laughs) admitting that up front. I'm going to draw heavy from his words here. But he says, imagine uh, drawing a, a couple of circles on a piece of paper. So you have an inner circle, and then you have an outer circle. So two circles on the piece of paper. So the inner circle, this first circle, is called the circle of responsibility. So this circle represents things God has called you to do that you cannot give to anyone else. So if you're a parent, God has called you to parent those particular children. You cannot give it to other people. If you're in your particular job that God has called you to, you cannot give that to somebody else to do. God has specially called you there. Uh, These are your daily God-ordained duties and your calling, you could say. So that's the circle of responsibility. Paul Tripp says the only proper response to this inner circle, this circle of responsibility, is to carefully and faithfully obey Trusting God for the empowering grace to do so. So you're trusting God to work in and through you to what he's called you to do, what he's given you responsibility over. Okay? Circle of responsibility. The second, the outer circle, is called the circle of concern. So this circle, the circle of concern, represents the many, 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 many things in your life that grab your attention, that capture your mind, and that weigh heavy upon your heart. So these are things that you might see that you're, uh, that, that these, these are things that you really have no control over. So these, these might be things in your family life, your, those closest to you. These might be things that, that happen far away, uh, like what happened in Memphis um, with this, uh, this person being uh, brutally beaten and killed. We have no control over that. And so these are things that are outside your control or influence, and yet, these are the very things we often try to control and influence. So I'm getting on a plane tomorrow to fly to 
uh, Orlando. Um, I'm not a particular. I'm not a big fan of flying. I've gotten used to it because I've been flying a lot the past few years. But um, but where my anxiety arises with it with flying is because I am out of control. And so what I want to do is I want to I want to take on the circle of responsibility that the pilot has someone who's been training for many years and has many of hours in the air, and I don't have any of those things. So how I'm going to deal with this, with this lack of control, is I'm going to worry and be anxious. The same can be said of your children. So I have five kids, so it is very easy for me, and I have tried uh, hard to, to try to control things in their life that I cannot control, especially as they become adults. I can't make the decisions for them anymore. And when it becomes a disaster, just take note, parents, when it becomes a disaster is when you begin to try to act outside the circle of responsibility. And you start to try to control and manipulate the circle of concern. Instead of saying, that's in the Lord's hands. So this is what Paul Tripp says wisely. If you load things into the inner circle that actually belong to God, you will be domineering and controlling and your life will be marked by anxiety and fear. Let me just read that again. If you load things into the inner circle that actually belong to God, you will be domineering and controlling and your life will be marked by anxiety and fear. This sounds a lot like Rebecca, doesn't it? Her desire is to control, her desire to control causes her to, to load this situation or try to load this situation into her inner circle when it truly belongs to God. And because she does this, because she tries to load this into her inner circle, she ends up losing more than she gains. She never sees Jacob again. Never sees him again. And, and you have to say, like, we've watched, we've looked at their marriage. Over, I mean, we could do a whole marriage series on them as well. Their marriage can't be good. Because if your wife goes around just trying to manipulate you and lie to you, that is not the sign of a healthy marriage. Just FYI, if you were struggling with that. So she loses way more than she gains. Because sending away Jacob was already in God's plan. He was already going to do that without any kind of manipulation from Rebecca. Just like it was his plan for Abraham's servant to, to go and get a wife for Isaac from the exact same place that he's sending Jacob. And even though God uses the deception of Rebecca, it's, it's Isaac, not Rebecca, whom God uses to send Jacob out in the direction God wants him to go. And that's what our final point is in chapter 28, verses 1 through 5. So let me first just say something about Jacob. He doesn't get brought up a ton in this story, specifically. But just so you know, and Hunter next week is going to begin our, our, our just the story of Jacob um, next week, but, but Jacob has miles, literal miles, and literal years to go before he understands or even believes God's hand is upon him. Even at this point in his life, he is still essentially walking in unbelief. 
in the God of his fathers. So right now, he's still a pawn in the game where he's hated by his brother and he's manipulated by his mother. Yet God is still moving him to the place he needs to be so that he can learn these lessons. Which is a great encouragement because it says, Jacob is still the promised one, even amidst all of this chaos. And the one that God uses to send him on his way is his father Isaac. Now this is actually encouraging to see considering what we've seen about Isaac. I know I said a couple of weeks ago that he is, he is a very... Um, minor player in a lot of ways in his life. He didn't have this extraordinary life like his father Abraham did. It's very quiet. It's very subdued. He made a a ton of mistakes, often repeated ones that his father made. But as one commentator said about Isaac, Isaac is the only person in the entire episode who is at last beginning to look like one whose life God is working. Earlier, he had been weak and willful, But God had shaken him to his foundations, and he is now determined to please God. So it's a confirmation that God is still on the move in this family, and that Jacob is still the promised one. The promised line continues. And God, in his grace and mercy towards Isaac, uses Isaac to sort of reset the tone of his family. And we see that in the way in which Isaac now willingly blesses his son Jacob. He's fully aware of what he's doing. He's not, you're kind of like, when we saw Isaac back when he's being deceived by Jacob and, and Rebecca, he's kind of, you look at him, he's like, this is like this weak old man. He doesn't understand what's going on. He's kind of, he seems kind of senile and crazy. But here you have this clear-headed, sharp-as-attacked old man who knows exactly what he's doing with his son as he blesses him again. And this time he blesses him in even stronger terms than the first time he blesses Jacob. So look at chapter 28, verses 3 and 4. This is Isaac's blessing to Jacob. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Exclamation point. So something significant about this particular style in which Isaac chooses to give the blessing to Jacob is that uh, he picks up on the language of the blessings of God to Abraham. And also... When that takes place in Genesis 17, and also the blessing given to him by his father Abraham in Genesis chapter 26. And he kind of combines it all into one. Because it's the same promise, right? It's the same promise that God gave to Abraham, that Abraham uh, gave to Isaac, and now Isaac gives to his son Jacob. And the main hint of this is that Isaac refers to God in the same way God refers to himself in his blessing to Abraham. Almighty. Almighty God. It's as if if the realization of the situation that he is in, seeing God's strange sovereignty play out in his life, has now opened his eyes to see who God truly is. 
He is God Almighty. His thoughts of God have changed. Now, I know I've read this quote before, A.W. Tozer's quote from the Knowledge of the Holy, his book, Knowledge of the Holy. And it's the first sentence in the first, I mean, it's the first sentence of the first chapter. He says, What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. And then he goes on. The gravest question before the church is always God himself, and the most portentous fact about any person is not what they at a given time may say or do, but what they in their deep heart conceives God to be like. Because we tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. We move towards some secret uh, law of the soul, towards this God that we have created in our mind. That's why Calvin says that the heart is an idol-making factory. We are constantly making gods. And we are constantly rearranging our thoughts about the true God. So what view of God are you moving toward or away from? It happens both ways. So for Isaac, in in chapter 27, his view of God was that he wasn't sovereign. His view of God uh, was that he was not in control, at least not over the blessings of his son. Isaac was saying, I know what's best, God. He didn't believe in a great God. He didn't believe in a mighty God, but a small and limited God. In chapter 28, a much different story. What comes to Isaac's mind when he thinks about God is his greatness, that that he is the almighty God. Because he's thinking, for for only an almighty God could take the mess of my life and take the mess of my family and work out all of the details despite the interference that we've caused. Only an almighty God can do that. So I'll ask again, what comes into your mind when you think about God? Is it a mediocre God that is small and limited? Is it a God that you only occasionally go to or interact with? And maybe today is the day you say, today is my God interaction day, Sunday, and the rest of the week is nothing. Or maybe... You're moving away from a God that has been misrepresented by parents. We tend to do things like that sometimes. Or an unhealthy church. Or a politician. And you think, looking at these models, these things that have been invented, if that is the God these people worship, I don't want any part of it. But all of those thoughts, when you think about, or when you consider the life of Isaac and his family, even just to this point in the story, all of those thoughts are wrong that we have. Because this story shows us that that God is almighty, that, that God is great, that he is moving his promise along in this grand drama, not only for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their families, but he's moving me and you along in this grand drama as well. This same Almighty God is 
moving you along by his strange sovereignty because just like he's doing in Genesis, he is leading us to the promise. He is leading us to his son. He is leading us to the true Adam, the snake crusher, our king, Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. God Almighty, Sovereign One, I pray that we would all see you as the Almighty God that you are. I pray that we would see your sovereign hand in our own lives, that we would see your sovereign hand that leads us day by day, moment by moment, to an ever clearer understanding and picture of our King Jesus. So I pray that you would uh, turn us away from those uh, false ideas uh, uh, that we have of you that aren't biblical, and that you would give us a clearer picture of who you are, so that we might serve you and worship you, God, uh, just as we saw uh, Isaac do in our text. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.